Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Now, nonstop sports talk continues with news and analysis from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. Not the hero we deserve, but the hero we need. This is the Big Six. It's going to be you. With your host, Jason Martin. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. What's up? Straight up 6 o'clock by my watch means only one thing. means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. Thank you for making me a part of your evening. I'm Jason Martin, host of this fine program, also the editor-in-chief over at the Big Six blog. Tomorrow, by the way, you'll want to check this out. Crimes of Grindelwald, screening that later on this evening. We'll have a review up so you'll know whether or not it's worth taking your family to or or endeavoring into if you're like me and you just love Harry Potter. Some big stories happening in sports. I tell you, I don't like to waste your time. That's always the mission statement here, so let's jump right in. You can follow me on Twitter, by the way, at jmartzone. Our telephone number is 615-737-1045. So I want to talk a little Le'Veon Bell because we're about done with that story. But first... This is the first time in the history of the college football playoff top 10 that there were no changes 1 to 10 in the rankings. It came out last night. The movement all came outside the top 10. You had UCF move up 1 to 11. Syracuse jumped a spot to 12. Penn State jumped 6 from 20 to 14 after beating Wisconsin. That Wisconsin team is just not very good this year, honestly. And this is a question that's been addressed. But I want to take a look at the rest of the top ten here in this first segment. Sands LSU, because we've already seen that game. And I want to look a little bit at which of the remaining eight teams have the best chance to beat Alabama and why. Because that's what it's come to in college football. It's Alabama versus the field now in much the same way it was Tiger versus the field and it was Serena versus the field. It's that level of domination at this stage. Tua Tonga-Vailoa is the Lamborghini in the garage full of Bentleys. You didn't even know you needed a Lamborghini, but you've always wanted a Lamborghini. Now you got one, but you've still got those Bentleys too. Henry Ruggs is awesome. Jerry Judy is as dynamic an athlete at the receiver position as you're going to find. They've got another stud tight end out there that can block and catch. Nick Saban is the best coach. That's not in dispute. I'd probably put Dabo Swinney at two. But let's take a look at the rest of this top ten and pro-con this and figure out who would have the best chance. Two weeks ago today on Halloween, Bet DSI released odds for Alabama against a number of different opponents in order from best odds to worst odds. They, at that point, would have been a six-point favorite against Clemson, nine-and-a-half against Oklahoma, ten-and-a-half over Georgia, eleven-and-a-half over Michigan, 14 and a half over Ohio State, 15 and a half over Notre Dame, 16 and a half over Central Florida, which I think is insane, 18 and a half over Washington State. And remember, they were a 14 and a half point favorite over LSU on the road 
And then the odds changed. Bovada released new odds after the Tide crushed the Tigers. Odds of 9 over Clemson, 3-point increase. 14.5 over Michigan, 3-point increase. 21 over Notre Dame, 4.5-point increase. Look, I have laid this case out before. To beat Alabama is very similar in a list of necessity to get it done to beating the Patriots over the past two decades in the playoffs or even the Golden State Warriors in the playoffs. We just saw the Titans beat the Patriots. It was unprecedented. I gave that stat out on Monday Night Titans. I'll give it out again right now. Tom Brady's first game in November of 2000 when he came in the fourth quarter for Drew Bledsoe the Patriots lost that game 34-9 to to the Detroit Lions. That's the last time that the Patriots have been beaten by 24 or more points as late as week four in a season since Tom Brady's first game, and it happened on Sunday thanks to the Tennessee Titans. But beating Alabama, beating the Patriots, beating maybe the Golden State Warriors in the playoffs requires not one but two different things, and it's the second one that ends up being the big difference maker here. You have to be able to walk into that stadium, step onto that field, and have legitimate, not false, but legitimate confidence that you can actually beat Alabama. You can't walk in with the arrogance, but you've got to know that if you play well, you've got a good shot. At the same time, you've got to have the requisite respect for those guys, and you've got to expect that they're not going to beat themselves, because they generally never do. The Patriots don't generally beat themselves. The Steelers often have been a team that don't beat themselves. The Warriors don't beat themselves. And when they get behind, they're not just going to roll over and die, even if they fall behind. So that's number one. You've got to walk in believing you can get the job done. Number two to me is even more crucial. In addition to believing you can do it, maybe even that you should do it, if you get a lead, if you're lucky enough to get a lead, you come out of the gates with a good start, or maybe even you just stay within shouting distance and you're within a touchdown or a field goal ahead or behind, but you're really close. You've got to avoid the conclusion of, holy crap, we might actually beat them. That can't be your attitude. And that's what I saw from Georgia in the national championship game. Georgia believed they could win coming in. There's no question about that. And they had Bama on the ropes. Even with Tua entering the game, recall not every drive Tua Tonga-Vailoa put forth in the second half of the national championship game was some just marvelous thing of beauty. He turned the ball over. Georgia then all of a sudden just got tight, started making some bad play calls. And it came to me mainly because those guys started crossing their fingers for the clock to run out rather than keeping the foot on the throat of the Crimson Tide. Alabama made it easy as they started throwing their punches at Georgia and fighting back. And that's what was so strange about this Titans-Patriots game on Sunday is you kept waiting for those haymakers to come from New England. You kept waiting for them to fight back, and then it was, all right, how are the Titans going to answer when the Patriots make a run? And the run just never came. It was such a strange game in that way. But when Alabama started throwing punches at Georgia in the national title game and fighting back into it, the Bulldogs didn't know what to do. The Bulldogs should have won that game, but they just could not finish. So when I look at the rest of this top five and the top ten in college football based on these rankings, who is it that I buy? I've got to have a coach I think exudes the attitude not just of strength and power, but also a positive intensity. 
And that's why I think at first I would go with Clemson and then probably Georgia, probably in that order. I'm, I've made no bones about it. I like just about everything Dabo Swinney does. I like just about everything Dabo Swinney says and what he believes in and where he stands. Trevor Lawrence has that offense scoring points, with all due respect to, to Kelly Bryant. But this is a team that also plays exceptional defense, has a team full of guys that are going to play on Sundays on both sides of the ball, and plus, unlike just about everybody else in the top ten, Dabo Swinney has actually had success against Nick Saban. In fact, he beat him in the national title game two years ago with Deshaun Watson down in Tampa. Kirby Smart had his former boss beaten, but he couldn't finish it. That's what we just talked about. That Georgia team is loaded, just like it was last year. Even though at times I don't think they've lived up to the lofty expectations this season. They've underperformed at times, but they're still number 5 in the country with just that one loss to LSU, who is also a top-10 team even after the loss to Alabama. But in the SEC title game this year, it's arguable they have the best chance to beat Alabama maybe even more so than Clemson, because they know that they can. A lot of this team, the guys that will be on the field, was either on the sidelines or on the field back in January. And if it comes down to special teams, Bama still doesn't have a place kicker because they never do, and Georgia has Blankenship, who's about as solid as you could ever want. So you like Georgia's chances, if you like anybody's chances, and that's the caveat here. I don't. I think everybody's playing for second. I'm just trying to argue as to who has the best chance of these teams that are in the top ten that could have an opportunity to make it into the Final Four. Jim Harbaugh, I just don't see it against Alabama. That Michigan defense is elite, no question about it. Shea Patterson has played really well, but that Michigan team simply would not be able to score enough points. And I don't think they'd score 14 points in that game. Maybe they'd hold Alabama to 24, but they'd still lose by 10. I think that Alabama might get more than that. Notre Dame, undefeated right now. If they run the table, they're definitely going to be in. They've narrowly escaped two tough losses, one to a mediocre to bad Vanderbilt team, and another to Pittsburgh. Both of these were five-point victories that were in doubt late. I think they'd get embarrassed by Alabama. I am right there on record. Maybe we'll see that game, and I'll eat my words. I don't think so. I think this is the same level of beatdown we saw the last time Notre Dame matched up with Nick Saban in a playoff game. It did not go well. I think West Virginia actually would give the Crimson Tide a better game than Oklahoma if we were getting somebody out of the Big 12 because I like Dana Holgerson's defense a little more than I like Lincoln Riley's. Neither of them is particularly impressive, and while they can score, the Bama offense would chew them up. The defense would be unlike anything either team has seen all season long, meaning Bama's defense. Washington State, that's a similar situation. They're not as dynamic as either of those two Big 12 teams. Urban Meyer and Ohio State just don't have enough horses, it doesn't look like. You don't get crushed by Purdue and then expect me to give you a real shot against Alabama. To beat Alabama, I've been in for Clay Travis all week on Outkick the Coverage, but I talked to him some on air on Monday, and he asked me what this team had left to prove or what it takes to beat them. First, it takes them having an awful day at the same time the opponent has a great day. That, to me, is an insane compliment to how dominant they are. They've got to be all-time bad, and you've got to be really good. I'm going to stop short, though, of calling them the best college football team I've ever seen because I actually watched that 2001 Miami team. That's the single most loaded roster of all time. All respect to all those other rosters, those great Nebraska teams, 
the 04 USC team with Reggie Bush and Lindell White and Matt Leinert and all those guys, and this Alabama team that I think is probably number two on the list. What I'd love to see is the hypothetical point spread between 2018 Bama and 2001 Miami. That would be fascinating. I would say Miami by a field goal. Listen to this absurdity just in terms of one stat. That year, Miami had 10 touchdowns on defense and special teams. They only gave up 12 total combined to opponents the entire season. Willis McGahee, he was the backup to Clinton Portis on that team. Third string running back, Frank Gore, still in the league. That team had Andre Johnson, Kellen Winslow, Jeremy Shockey. On defense, they had Sean Taylor, Ed Reed, Vince Wilfork, Jonathan Vilma. But honestly, because of Tua, who is far superior to Ken Dorsey as a quarterback, the Bama offense is more prolific, even with those names I just laid out. That Miami team beat its opponents by around 29, 30 points a game. Bama going into this weekend where they only won 24 to nothing, they are being teams going into this past weekend by 37.2. I think everybody's playing for second. But I think Clemson and Georgia have the best case. I would take Clemson and Georgia as the two teams with the best shot to beat Alabama. But I don't think anybody's going to beat Alabama. Up next, Le'Veon Bell. I interviewed Mark Schlereth on Fox Sports Radio yesterday, and he was very candid about his thoughts on Le'Veon Bell. We'll discuss how we got from there to here with Bell. He shut it down for 2018, won't be playing football. This is the Big Six on 104.5. Welcome back in. Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Make sure you follow me there. Well, we're going to talk about something we're probably not going to have to talk about again for several months unless it goes all wrong for this guy because, well, his story kind of came to a close yesterday, at least for the remainder of the NFL season. Le'Veon Bell is not going to play in 2018. Now, whether or not you believe Le'Veon Bell should have signed his franchise tender yesterday and agreed to play the rest of the season with the Steelers, there's one thing that Le'Veon Bell proved beyond any shadow of a doubt yesterday. There's not really a hint of a question about this, at least in the short term. Le'Veon Bell values himself and his bank account over winning a championship. And look, that's okay. There's a lot of athletes that feel the same way. And I'm not saying at all that he does not want to win a ring or that he does not care. What I'm saying is that objectively, Le'Veon Bell cannot look at the Pittsburgh Steelers and fail to recognize they're one of maybe six to eight teams in the NFL right now that legitimately have all the pieces to win the upcoming Super Bowl. We know he's gone after this year. We've known that for a while. So what he's done is... He's made a decision that the risk to injury, which as we've watched what's happened to Dez Bryant and maybe even Earl Thomas dating back earlier in the year, it's high. Especially in the case of Dez, somebody trying to make it on the field midway through a season. So he's left basically $15 bucks on the table. $14.5 million if we're being specific. The last five of that approximately or so falling away after yesterday's 4 p.m. deadline went. Because he believes and he said that he should be paid not just as or like a running back, but like a running back and a top flight wide receiver. Now, the argument that Bell is some kind of transcendent player 
this according to ESPN, they wrote it better than I could here because they have it all laid out. It's a challenging one to try and put out there. Bell, one of 13 running backs and 124 total players with at least 1,000 yards receiving from 2015 to 2017. Of those 124, Bell ranked in the bottom seven for air yards per attempt, explosive reception rate, receiving touchdowns, and yards per reception. He ranked no better than 11th among the 13 running backs in those categories, despite being a consensus elite back who is a game plan consideration for opponents. Yeah, he can catch. So can Todd Gurley. So can Alvin Kamara. So can Melvin Gordon. So can David Johnson. But receiver money given to a running back is asking an awful lot because that position has the shortest shelf life of any one spot in all of pro sports. It's basically a three-year career, give or take, on average. He's got to get paid this time around. We understand that. So what he wasn't going to do is take a backseat to Gurley's contract or sign a franchise tag, even if the franchise tag was decent money. There's an excellent, really good article on ESPN.com. Jeremy Fowler wrote it. He lays out a complete timeline dating back to early 2016 as to how we got from there to here with Le'Veon Bell. Let me read some of these highlights to you, but I tell you you should go actually just read this article. Back in the summer of 2016, Le'Veon puts out the first of a few different rap tracks that have come out over the past few years where he basically indicated he was worth $15 million a season. He has some off-field trouble, but he's terrific when he's on the field. Franchise tag number one comes in February of 2017, $12.12 million. He's not happy. He makes it clear publicly. He doesn't show up for organized team activities in May of 2017. Then two months later in July, that franchise tag time frame expires with no deal, and he says this on television. Quote, I feel I should be valued as a player, not so much my position. Hopefully down the line I can get valued at, not as much a guy who gets the ball 30 carries and that's it. I make plays in the passing game, blocking, doing everything. I'm arguably the top running back in the NFL, the number two receiver on the Steelers, even though I play running back. Their career receiving total versus mine, they don't have more yards than me. Unquote. He holds out. It ends just before the season starts in week one. He was great last season, as we know, even though James Conner's numbers this year are eclipsing much of Bell's productivity. In October of last year, they lose to the Jacksonville Jaguars. In that game, he has 12 carries for 47 yards. He comes out again publicly, talks about sticking to the run being the key to victory. Following week, he has 20 more carries than he did before he ran his mouth. 32 carries, 179 yards against the Chiefs. So what we know is... Le'Veon Bell's got a history of saying a lot of stuff related to his worth and his perceived value of himself. And you've got to remember here, he's still salty about this first franchise tag, and he still believes he should be making a lot more loot than he is. So after saying some positive things, and the team does the same, about getting a deal done, he gets tagged on the final day of the exclusive window in early March of this year. 14.5 14.5 million for this season. The year before was 13.3 is what he was averaging. So the Steelers were going to give him a little bit more. He says this. He says he's only playing, meaning negotiating, for my value to the team. That's what I'm asking. Then he says, I'll sit or I'll retire. Then come all these tweets and the no shows and the comments from the offensive linemen like Pouncey. 
And then comes a second rap track all about his negotiations that basically cast the Pittsburgh Steelers organization as the villain of his musical story. And then comes the kicker. On July the 25th, Todd Gurley signs a four-year, $57.5 million extension with the Rams, and it includes a fifth-year option. It averages only about $11.5 million, including that season. He gets $21.95 million at signing, and that's where you start to see it. All these incentives and these things that are added on to this deal make it much more appetizing. Bell, if you haven't figured this out already, thinks he should be making more than Todd Gurley. And this extension is where Pittsburgh realized they were probably going to lose Le'Veon Bell. What they did not anticipate was that a running back was going to get a deal like this that was going to dramatically change the value of the running back market. And once Gurley inked his name to that extension, Bell was gone. Then comes the start of this season. He gives up the $833,000 check for the first week. And in that season opener, James Conner rushes for 192 yards. Then Conner goes on a tough stretch for weeks 2, 3, and 4, and Bell's on Twitter a little bit here and there. And people are starting to wonder if he's going to come back. But now, Conner's near the top of the league in yards. He's near the top of the league in scores on the ground as a back with the touchdowns. And Le'Veon Bell is being seen on jet skis in Florida. He releases an EP. This dude really enjoys his music. Cryptic tweets continue, literally, as he goes upside down with a tweet. The Steelers start putting it together on the field. It looked like a dumpster fire at first. The early turmoil you know, surrounding Antonio Brown begins to fade away. And then Thursday Night Football last week, a total beatdown by the Pittsburgh Steelers over Carolina, who was sort of a trendy favorite for the playoffs. And I still think they're going to make the playoffs and be heard from. Now Bell's got a decision he's got to make. And then comes, like I just mentioned, that upside-down reverse tweet. Then he says, farewell Miami. And then he's seen playing basketball in a gym in Pittsburgh. Speculation starting to wonder whether or not Le'Veon Bell wants to come back and play football again. But then yesterday comes and goes, he does not show, and now he's ineligible. I had Mark Schlereth yesterday on Outkick the Coverage, where I'm filling in for Clay on Fox Sports Radio. You hear the first hour of that show before the wake-up zone here on The Zone every day, every weekday. And Mark Schlereth, who's really good at what he does, he's also really candid when he's asked questions. And you're going to hear something interesting here. Just at, And I think this is how most players feel. This is more the Earl Thomas feeling. It is definitely the pro-player, anti-organization, and certainly anti-NFL position. But I think it's absolutely worth hearing. So when we come back from this break... We'll lead in. I will play this Mark Schlereth answer and my question to him about Le'Veon Bell, and then we'll discuss this a little bit more, including now that we know he's not going to be in Pittsburgh anymore. That's almost assured at this stage. Not just almost assured. They're going to let him go. There's no point. They'll get the $14.5 million back, obviously, in the cap, and they can go sign somebody else, and Connor has proven they should let Le'Veon Bell go, and he'll find another deal. 
We'll talk about where it is that he could end up. Maybe it could be in the AFC South. Some executives have weighed in on that. But I want you to make sure you come back to hear what Mark Schlereth had to say, and then we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get into possible landing spots for Le'Veon Bell. This is a Big Six. I'm Jason Martin, 615-737-1045, or on Twitter at jmartzone. We're back in a flash here with the Big Six on 1045. Glad to have you with us. It's Wednesday. It is the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can follow me there, our telephone number. I told you before the break, I talked to Mark Schlereth, and he was very candid about what he had to say about Le'Veon Bell. Now, if you remember before the break, and if you missed or if you're just now getting into your car, just now tuning in to 104.5 The Zone, I have no idea what you're doing with your life, but welcome. I'm blessed to have you as part of my audience. Go subscribe to my podcast. As a matter of fact, The Big Six with Jason Martin. You can subscribe, get the entire archive, including all the Monday Night Titan shows that I'm having such a fun time doing with Jim Wyatt and Mark Mariani down at Martin's Barbecue. While you're there, subscribe to all the Zone podcasts, Wake Up Zone, Midday 180, 3HL. So much talent in this building. I am so privileged just to share this studio with all of these folks that I've listened to for so many years, and they've been so welcoming to me. So definitely check out the podcast. But talking about Le'Veon Bell in the last segment, I laid out the Jeremy Fowler article at ESPN.com where he kind of went through the timeline dating back to early 2016 that got us to yesterday. And Le'Veon Bell's decision officially, I'm going to shut it down. I'm not going to sign the franchise tag. I'll look to my next big contract somewhere else. He will not be a Pittsburgh Steeler Before I go any further, I want you to hear Mark Schlereth, who really did stand with Le'Veon Bell, as many former players and current players, I would say. But here is my question to Mark Schlereth about Le'Veon Bell and Mark's answer. Listen to this. We're seeing Le'Veon Bell and his situation is going to come to some kind of culmination by the end of today as to whether or not he's going to play. It seems likely he's not. A couple of questions. One, would you shut it down if you're him, and do you expect him to shut it down? And two... As a former player and somebody who makes a living analyzing and commenting on this league, how do you feel about the way in which Le'Veon Bell has chosen to conduct himself throughout this process? All right, yeah. Would I shut it down? I think at this point, you come back and, and the odds are that it's going to be really hard to be productive and you're just going to risk, you know, you're going to, you're going to be at such risk of injury because yeah, there's no way to train to play football other than to play football. And, um, when you're, you know, when you're battling against other guys and you're pushing, you're doing all those things. That's that's what ends up, you know, what what you can't train for. So I think the likelihood likelihood of being injured, um, be, you know, grows exponentially, if you will. Um, listen, here's the deal. I have I have always been, you know, I've always favored the players and. Um, you know, I don't know behind the scenes what was promised and what wasn't promised and what was said and what wasn't said. But I will never, I will never be angry at a player for trying to get taken care of. And when I look at his contract and the offer of the contract, and I understand the Steelers not wanting to pay it because of past transgressions and the potential of injuries and all those things, I get it. But when I see what the value is for Todd Gurley, and I see what you offered Le'Veon Bell as a player. That pisses me off. 
because you didn't offer him a market value contract. Um, you know, overall, yeah, the, after five years, you did. But we know that an NFL contract might as well be written on toilet paper because that's what it's worth. And it really came down to the guarantees up front. And those things were not commensurate with what the market bears. And so I don't have any issue with him going about doing this. Like the whole, hey, you should honor your contract as a player, my ass. The, the league never honors their contracts, ever, ever do they honor a contract. When was the last time the league ever honored anybody's contract? If you don't perform, they cut your butt. And it happens yeah. time and time and time again. And so, you know, I don't, the fans don't stand on their pulpit when, you know, a guy gets cut that has a three years left on his deal and say, well, you know, he just didn't live up to the contract. You know, injuries happen and, and things happen. So um, I don't ever get mad at a player for, for standing up for what he believes is right. And, um, and you know, you may not like the way he went about it or you may not like the language or what he's done on Twitter or social media, but I don't really care. So that was Mark Schlereth with me yesterday on Fox Sports Radio. And again, staunch defender of Le'Veon Bell there. And he's not alone by any means. Le'Veon Bell knows that his life and career in the NFL is finite, and he wants to make sure that he's going to maximize. But I think he misplayed this. I think that the decision he's made in the last week, he's probably right about. But his original decision, he misplayed it. Because he overvalued himself. He bet on himself, which is not a bad thing, but he overvalued himself, and James Conner's made him look bad. Not just James Conner, but a lot of backs in this league that aren't commanding anywhere near the kind of money that Le'Veon Bell thinks he's worth that are producing at a very high level. So that takes us to where exactly Le'Veon Bell is going. He wasn't going to be back with the Steelers anyway. I don't, Like I said, I don't think he made the wrong move now, but he handled things incorrectly then, to the extent I would actually say kind of dumb on Le'Veon Bell's part. He left $14.5 million on the table this year. It wasn't particularly smart. He's now been proven to be expendable thanks to James Conner, and you can find somebody to run this football well for you in the NFL without having to pay out the nose for it. But he's still going to get a nice deal. Some executives that have been talked to about this are suggesting Le'Veon Bell's going to likely get offered what's going to be seen as a very solid deal. Now the Steelers are going to save the $14.5 million in cap space. Possible landing spots. The Bucks and Jets are two of the leaders in the clubhouse. I would say both of them are going to have new head coaches next year, whether they have Le'Veon Bell on their team or not. Maybe the Houston Texans. Not that Lamar Miller hasn't done a good job there, but if you look at Le'Veon Bell and you think, okay, that's the piece that alongside Deshaun Watson, alongside DeAndre Hopkins, alongside Watt and that defense, that's what gets us over the hump and gets us not just to the Super Bowl but can win it for us, then maybe you pay him. Another article I read mentioned from an executive saying maybe the Miami Dolphins, which is a situation. Now, they've got Frank Gore near the end of his career, certainly, and they've got Kenyon Drake. There's a lot of turmoil there. I don't know how hot Adam Gase's seat is. I don't know what they're going to be doing at the quarterback position with how injury-prone Ryan Tannehill has proven to be and Brock Osweiler getting multiple starts this season. Another possible landing spots Philadelphia which was talked about as a potential trade option maybe a month month and a half ago did not come to fruition but Philadelphia 
could potentially be somebody to look. Maybe the Raiders could pay for him. They're not paying for Khalil Mack. They're looking to rebuild the entire franchise. Probably going to be drafting a quarterback. Maybe they would pony up the money that they wouldn't pay for Khalil Mack. So maybe they take him. How about the Washington Redskins? That's a playoff team, but not a very good team. Le'Veon Bell is, at worst, the second or third best running back probably in the league when he's healthy, when he's being used to his fullest extent. Now, keep this in mind as well. Le'Veon Bell cares a lot about money. So the fact that there's no income tax in places like Florida and Texas, that could really, really matter for him. He's going to ask for 16 to $17 million a year. Expectation is... He'll probably get between 15 and 16. He'll get four years, 60 mil, 30 million guaranteed, somewhere in that neighborhood. I saw Evan Silver of RotoWire tweet out, best bet is he's going to get a one-year commitment disguised as a three-year deal, 45 to 50 million max range in March, heavy incentives, per-game roster bonuses, low guarantees. I don't know what's going to happen with Le'Veon Bell. I do know that if we talk about him between now and the offseason, it's probably not good news for him because he's done something or said something that's put him in the news. He's taking himself out of the news cycle. He's not playing football this year. We're going to close with a tribute to a giant. You don't want to miss it. The Big Six, 104.5. Um. Welcome back. Final segment of the program. Big Six here on 104.5 Zone. Glad to have you with us hanging out. I'm Jason Martin. On Twitter at jmartzone, you can follow me there. Volcals following us, then Global Golf Radio Neutral Zone. A lot of fun stuff to come. Stick with us here on the Zone all night long. As you know, I talk a lot about pop culture. I write about pop culture for part of my living and have for several years now. And I have not written about this, and I've debated writing a longer piece, and maybe that's going to come. It's been a little bit of a busy week, but on Monday we lost Stan Lee. Died at 95, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A. He was rushed there on the 12th. He had been battling pneumonia. He was just getting older and was just struggling. Stan Lee in 1974 won the Inkpot Award. 94, the Will Eisner Award Hall of Fame. The Jack Kirby Hall of Fame a year later. The Saturn Award in 2012. George W. Bush gave him the National Medal of Arts in 2008. He won the Hugo Award and a Scream Award in 2009. 2011, he was put into the Hollywood Walk of Fame. 2012, Producers Guild of America gave him the Vanguard Award. He was given the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Visual Effects Society. And then he won a Video Game Award for performance in a comedy in 2017. 2009, October the 2nd, was declared Stan Lee Day in the county of Los Angeles and the city of Long Beach. Who is Stan Lee, you might be asking. Most of you probably know. Stan Lee, born in 1922, wrote comic books. He edited comic books. He published comic books. He was at one point the editor-in-chief of Marvel. Later publisher. Later chairman. Probably the most instrumental factor in the expansion of Marvel to becoming a multimedia corporation. He worked with guys like Jack Kirby like Steve Ditko, who are names that are iconic in comics, might not be iconic to you, co-created Spider-Man, the Hulk, the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Black Panther, Daredevil, Doctor Strange. 
Then he and his brother created Ant-Man, Thor, and Iron Man. He's been a figurehead for a long time. He's been, you know, on the Big Bang Theory. He's been in all the Marvel films and these clever little, you know, 10-second little cameos. He has been a force in entertainment for a long time. He's inspired a lot of the storytellers we see now. He certainly has inspired the way comics have expanded and changed and become part of the cultural fabric. And he passed away. And I heard author Brad Meltzer say on Tuesday in a radio interview that I happened to listen into that he was this generation's Walt Disney in a lot of ways. Walt Disney, who of course was an icon and set the stage and also was kind of the defining characteristic of most children as they were growing up with Disney films. This even before there was a Disney network or certainly a Disney XD or any of those kinds of things. But if you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the money that's been generated, the merchandise that's been sold, the names that have become stars or re-emerged onto the scene in a mainstream way thanks to exposure in those films, guys like Robert Downey Jr. who had a career, struggled mightily with substances and all sorts of other things, then took that job playing Tony Stark in Iron Man and is now right back on the A-list higher than he's ever been. Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth and all of these guys and gals, Scarlett Johansson, and the list goes on and on. None of this exists without Stan Lee. And one thing that I have mentioned on this show in the past, as we've been talking about other stories and things that happen in sports, is that I believe that sports and the athletes that play them on the highest level are the closest things that we have to superheroes in an entertainment landscape via a reality show. The real heroes are the ones that we celebrated on November the 11th, and the ones that we should celebrate every day. Every day should be Veterans Day in this country. The real heroes are those that are in Nashville Metro Police cruisers right now listening to me here on 104.5 The Zone, those that are fighting fires, those that are first responders, those that are teachers, those that are mothers and fathers that are raising the future of this country and of this world. There are a lot of definitions of heroes. But when I think of superhero, I am not able to separate the entertainment value and the we only can marvel, no pun intended, at what we see these thing, you know, these people do in these capes and all of their stories. But they became real people. They weren't just perfect, the way Superman was early in his run, for example. And it was Stan Lee that changed that. It was Stan Lee that wanted to write these heroes as flawed people that had gifts sometimes given to them, like in the case of Spider-Man, but that they struggled with temper or mood or conditions in society. He was somebody that fought against racism, fought against bigotry, fought against discrimination, wanted to use comics to try and push that through his entertainment. Stanley was a giant, folks. If you think of that list of creations that I laid out for you a couple of minutes ago, of just the things he was responsible for, the characters, the worlds, the stories, the lives, and the deaths, there are people that transcend genres. 
Stanley was one of those people. There are not a long list of folks that have been more instrumental in fictional storytelling than Stan Lee in a much different way than some that came before him. And he had his troubles. He had his personal problems. But he also had a wide smile, and you saw it on his face almost every time you saw him. And I just wanted to thank Stan Lee on the way out tonight for helping me grow up, for giving me the entertainment as a child, for giving me the desire to want to continue to read and to endeavor into these worlds and to dream bigger than myself. Looking at the Spider-Men and the X-Men and the Fantastic Four and all of the characters that he created, we saw flawed people that were trying to do the right thing, that had a moral code, that had a purpose, and it followed through with that purpose. There's a real short list of people that were as influential as Stan Lee. We mentioned Walt Disney. C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, these are folks that have led to so much in terms of storytellers that have followed. And you've got your own list. And I've got a much longer list, but I don't have a much longer show. So I just wanted to mention a few names there. Stanley was 95 years old. Stanley's legacy, however, is timeless. These characters will never die. Unfortunately, all human beings do have to die. Stan Lee lived 95 years old. Built in Manhattan right as the Roaring Twenties were beginning in 1922, three days after Christmas that year. Spent some of his formative years dealing with the Great Depression, the stock market crisis, civil rights movement, Vietnam, Watergate, everything. He lived through it all. And thanks to the characters he created, and thanks to what he did with the time that he was here, we actually have an opportunity in our own lives to go back and see that time frame through a creative lens that we otherwise would not have had. This man was a genius. He was a visionary. And just like the heroes that he gave us, he was flawed, just as we all were. Stan Lee was 95 years old, and I want to thank him for the entertainment that he provided and helping me to understand how much of an impact any of us can have if we simply care enough. Rest in peace, Stan Lee. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless, and good night.